The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Come together to God's Word to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And if you've been with us as we've walked through 1 Corinthians, you'll remember that for eight, nine chapters now, Paul has been answering a series of questions that the Corinthians had had for him on, on marriage and, and food sacrifice to, to idols and most recently spiritual gifts uh, and, and speaking in tongues. But it seems that after answering a number of questions that the Corinthians had for him, Paul now comes to 1 Corinthians 15 with a particular topic he wants to press uh, on the Corinthians. And it seems that Paul had a particular worry about what the Corinthians believed about the resurrection of Jesus and how that was impacting some of the other things uh, that they believed. And so in response to this, Paul pens uh, this glorious chapter, one of, I think, one of the most glorious chapters in the New Testament. I was, I was thinking back to my time uh, in seminary as I was preparing this message, and I think, although I didn't keep a tally while I was in seminary, I think it would be accurate to say that I heard more lectures and teaching based on this chapter than on any other single chapter uh, in Scripture. And so uh, I, I have been looking forward to, along with uh, Dr. Light and Pastor York, spending uh, four weeks working through 1 Corinthians 15. Tonight, uh, we'll be looking just at the first 11 verses, so if you would, read along with me from God's Word, 1 Corinthians 15, beginning at chapter 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, As one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So whether then it was I or they, so we preached, and so you believed." pray. Father, these are your words which you have written by your Holy Spirit and which you continue to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. We pray that we would understand your words and that your Spirit would apply them to our lives, that we might give greater glory to your name 
through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15 is a, a long chapter. It would be great if we could read the whole chapter each of these four weeks to get the context, but we can't for time. But I would just make the comment that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is really a grand structure that's built piece by piece, argument by argument, step by step over 60 verses. And as I was thinking about the structure of 1 Corinthians 15, it uh, reminded me of a game that I played not too long ago, and a game many of you probably played at some point, the game Mousetrap. And some of you have played Mousetrap, and you know that the game Mousetrap is, is played by spending the game building this elaborate device or elaborate uh, mechanical system by which you can trap the opponent's, player, uh, opponent's uh, mice. And the, the interesting thing about uh, the game is that each step is kind of its own unique little system. And you don't really understand what its role is until you get to the end. It's kind of, oh, this is, this is a neat piece. I wonder what this will do. Well, this is a neat piece. What will... We'll see what this does. And it's finally when you get to the end of the game that you see how all the pieces fit together and you see the, the whole mechanism that you've been building throughout the game. And I think that's, that's a little bit of what I see in 1 Corinthians 15. There's a lot of individual topics that Paul seems to be addressing as he works his way through. And at times it'll kind of seem like he's veered off on a rabbit trail here or now he's over addressing this point. But each piece is a, as a particular plank in his, his argument. Each one is an argument that he's building into this grand structure that will be displayed in all of its fullness by the time we get to the end of, of the chapter. So we need to know as we address this first piece of the argument in these verses that Paul has a very important point here, but it's also just the first point and a grand uh, argument that he's going to make about the resurrection of Jesus over uh, the full chapter. So in our passage, verses 1 through 11, Paul uh, gets at his first important argument, and that is the historical fact of the resurrection. In history, Jesus Christ died and then rose again from the dead. And that is the first piece that Paul puts in place. But before he spends uh, the bulk of our, of our section talking about this, Paul makes some preliminary comments in verses 1 and 2, which are, are important for us to look at. Paul begins in these first two verses reminding the Corinthians why the gospel is so important to them. Look for a minute with me at these, at these first two verses. It was interesting as I read a number of commentators on this passage, pretty much every commentator that I read disagreed with uh, the translation of uh, verse 1 where it says, now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And all of the commentators said, you know, really what Paul is saying is that he wants to make known the gospel to them or declare the gospel to them or declare a certain aspect of the gospel to them more so than remind uh, them of something. And uh, it can kind of seem a little bit unusual at first because the Corinthians already know the gospel. Reminding them seems to make more sense, but that doesn't seem to be what he's saying. Why does Paul need to make known the gospel if the Corinthians have already believed it? And that's sort of the, the question that's being wrestled with there. But uh, though the Corinthians have believed the gospel, it seems that at least in some portions of, of the fact of the resurrection, the Corinthians have misunderstood or not fully comprehended the significance of the resurrection for other things that they believed. And so it seems what Paul wants to do here is make known to them something of the gospel, an aspect of the gospel which they haven't fully understood or haven't correctly 
applied. There's something the Corinthians haven't known or haven't been thinking about that Paul wants to declare to them. At least, uh, I think we could say Paul hopes that they haven't understood it. Another option is that the Corinthians have understood the significance of the resurrection, but they've rejected portions of it, or they've decided not to believe certain portions of it. Note um, note how Paul says in verse 2, he says, I want to remind you or make known to you the gospel which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, if, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you have believed in vain. If some of the Corinthians were to deny a core element of the gospel that Paul preached to them, then any sort of remaining belief that they might claim in Christ is going to be in vain. And so Paul is here to remind them the gospel, Corinthians, is your life. It's your hope. It's your strong foundation. It's the thing you stand on, the thing that you are saved through. But you must hold fast to the gospel as I preached it to you. If you, do not, if you do not follow a portion, if you reject a portion, if you do not understand a portion, beware, lest what you claim to have believed in would be in vain. I think Paul, Paul's concern for the Corinthians here is really twofold. He wants to emphasize the importance of what the Corinthians believe, and he wants to emphasize the importance of continuing to believe what they have believed. And you see that in, in, in verse 2 there, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you. I think we can appreciate both of these emphasis. What we believe is important because what we believe is what we're putting our faith in. It's what we're depending upon. It's what we're resting on. It's what we're hoping in. And it's certainly understandable. You have probably talked to people. I know I have talked to people who have said, well, you know, I talked to this person and they say they believe in Jesus. So as long as they say they believe in Jesus, that's that's sufficient. But you have talked to people, and I have talked to people, where we need to ask a follow-up question. What do you mean when you say you believe in Jesus? There are many believers around us that you may have interacted with for whom Jesus was a good example, perhaps, perhaps the, a noble person who was willing to die to demonstrate his love. And if we'll just try to be a little bit more like Jesus, that's what it means to believe in Jesus. Well, we all know that, that is not a belief in Jesus that saves we were talking this morning in our senior high Sunday school class about Mormonism. If you have ever talked to a Mormon, I have had Mormons at my front door, maybe you have as well, and they will very gladly tell you, we believe in Jesus Christ. We believe he's the Son of God. We believe he died for our sins. But we need to ask follow-up questions because what do we believe about Jesus Christ? Who is he? What does he do? And what we believe about Jesus is significant. Or whether or not that, salva- or that belief in Jesus will lead to salvation. And so Paul's coming back here and, and he's saying, brothers, you need to believe in the gospel as it was preached to you. And uh, the Greek makes it, I think, even more clear than, than the English here. And he's emphasizing the words that they, that they heard. The words that were used to deliver the gospel were the truths of the gospel. And brothers, you can't depart from those truths and still claim to believe in Jesus and believe that you will be saved. So what we believe is important. It's also important that we continue in what we believe, perseverance in our faith. Paul says, uh, you are being saved if you hold fast to this word. There are some who have said, well, if you hold fast, does that mean that you can believe and then stop believing? Does that mean you can believe and then lose your salvation? That's not what Paul's talking about 
uh, at all. This isn't a matter of losing our salvation, but it's a recognition of the truth that's all over Scripture. Saving faith is a persevering faith. The faith by which we have hope is a faith which continues and perseveres. You might think of uh, Hebrews three fourteen, which warns, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Or 2 John 8 says, Watch yourselves, so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. I think uh, Charles Hodge, who was a 19th century theologian, summarized this verse well when he said, The Corinthian salvation is conditioned on their perseverance. If they do not persevere, they will not only fail of the consummation of their salvation, but it will become manifest that they were never justified in the first place. See, failing to persevere doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. It's a sign, as John says in 1 John 2, that we were never saved in the first place. So Paul is emphasizing, what is saving faith? Saving faith is faith in the words of the gospel, the truth of who Christ is, as it has been preached by Paul. And second, saving faith is a faith that perseveres to the end. So let us not lose hold of Christ. This is Paul's initial call to the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? If Paul begins by emphasizing the gospel, the gospel that saves those whose faith is rooted in the truth and who, who hold fast till the end, what is the gospel? And this is what Paul goes on to address in verses 3 through 8. Paul says, I delivered to you what I also received. And as he delivers what he also received, he establishes this first important argument, this first important truth in his argument in this chapter. He delivers what he received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. This is a a very important passage uh, as we look at uh, Paul's summary of the gospel. Most commentators would agree, both because it's such a succinct summary of the gospel, it's phrase by phrase summarizing the gospel in a short form, but also because of Paul's words where he says, I delivered to you what I myself received. Most commentators believe this was a summary of the gospel that was used in the early church um, to pass on what is the message of the gospel. And most, most believe that this is probably a summary. Uh, this specific wording was a summary of the gospel that was used within a year or two uh, of Christ's death and resurrection. Very early on, these were the words. These were, this was the form that gospel uh, sharing or evangelism took. This is sort of, these verses, you could say, sort of give us a window into early church evangelism. What did it look like for disciples to be going around Jerusalem and Samaria and the ends of the earth sharing Christ? Well, it looked like them going and saying, Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried and He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And He appeared to us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel that Paul received and that he passes on. Paul's key point here, what is, what is, what is the essence of the gospel here? Well, Paul is emphasizing here that the death and resurrection of Jesus are historical fact. They are real events that happened. And the gospel depends on the fact that the death and resurrection of Jesus actually happened as real events in history. 
If you think about this summary, and you think about uh, even Dr. Rogers' sermon this morning, it, I think we can all agree that the death of Jesus is something that many people didn't even doubt. Um, the storyline of a man who stirs up controversy in Palestine in the first century and is crucified by a Roman governor who wants to protect his job and his head by pleasing local leaders and the emperor is probably the most believable storyline anyone could come up with. Oh yeah, the Romans kill a man. A governor wants to save his head. Marin stirs up controversy and he is punished. That's very believable. There's very little doubt or argument about Jesus' death. But a man crucified by the Romans comes back to life? Resurrection from the dead? That's probably the most unbelievable storyline that you could come up with in the first century. You know, it's interesting because this is often overlooked. But uh, N.T. Wright, who's one of today's foremost New Testament historians and scholars, has thoroughly demonstrated that no one was expecting or would have believed that resurrection was possible. Yes, the Jews believed that there would be a general resurrection of all people at the end of history. But no Jew was looking for a person to rise from the dead in the middle of history. That wasn't within their theology. It was out of their question. And the Greeks and Romans, well, they had no thoughts of resurrection from the dead. You may remember in Acts 17 that Paul is going along just nicely sharing the gospel in Athens until he mentions the resurrection from the dead, and then he's laughed off the stage. Whether it's Jew or Gentile, no one was expecting or believed in the resurrection. That's why it's really such utter nonsense to think that the story of Jesus rising from the dead was something that the disciples made up. You'll you'll hear this with critics of, of the gospel, and they'll say, well, the disciples probably just stole the body. It was really the early church that came up with this whole idea of Jesus actually rising from the dead. But none of the disciples thought that resurrection was possible. And none of the disciples, therefore, thought that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. And no one the disciples talked to thought that resurrection was possible. No one is going to go around and spread a story that no one would believe and find immediate success. As I was uh, thinking about it, um, you have to know, uh, as I was preparing this sermon, that I am a great lover of snow. And I realize that uh, this is probably distressing to many of you, but I have been very distressed by our lack of snow so far this winter. And uh, so I was thinking here, you know, what if I was trying to explain to someone our lack of snow this year? And I, and I decided, you know, I'm going to explain our lack of snow is really being due to a large squadron of aliens who have placed gray cloud-looking tarps over the sky and prevented any snow from falling on the earth. Well, that would be ridiculous. I don't believe that's possible. You don't believe that's possible. It's scientifically nonsense. Why would I present that and why would I expect it to gain any traction? Same with resurrection from the dead in the first century. The disciples didn't believe it was possible. The Jews and the Greeks didn't believe it was possible. Why would anyone come up with the story and why would it gain traction uh, if, if, even if someone tried? This is a historical event. The only reason that someone is going to talk about a guy rising from the dead as a plausible foundation for belief is if it actually happened and they saw the man rise and were convinced about it. So Paul then goes into the resurrection here and he gives us two reasons to believe in Jesus' resurrection, that it was a resurrection, an event that actually happened. First, Paul notes that Jesus' death and resurrection happened in accordance with the Scriptures. 
And when Paul uses this phrase, in accordance with the Scripture, twice, I think Paul is, is saying, look, we may not have expected a resurrection, but we should have, because the Scriptures are full of it, and it's where the Scriptures were headed. Now, it's an interesting statement, and maybe you're, maybe you're kind of hunting around in your mind right now, as I was hunting around in my mind as I was preparing this, and you think, well, you know, I've read a lot of the New Testament, and you, many of you have read the New Testament far more than I have, and, and you might start thinking, well, where are all the places where the Old Testament talks about the Messiah rising from the dead on the third day. You might start scratching your head. And you think, I've read the Old Testament a lot, but I can't think of a lot of passages in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus rising from the dead. You might be able to think of Isaiah 53 that talks about Jesus' death, about him being crushed uh, for our iniquities. But, but resurrection, where? How was the resurrection in accordance with the Scriptures? And there are two passages that, that uh, are used... Um, Peter, you may remember in, his, uh, in Acts, Peter refers back to Psalm 16:10, which says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And Peter says that verse was looking ahead to Christ's resurrection. And there are others who, who look to Hosea 6:2, which says, After two days he will revive us, and on the third day he will raise us up, that we might live before him. And these are two excellent verses and two verses that Jesus does fulfill by rising again from the dead. But I think we can excuse those who would say, well, the Old Testament is a huge set of documents. And you're going to tell me that there's two little verses that kind of, you know, point a little bit towards a resurrection and all the scriptures are suddenly pointing towards a resurrection? Because Jesus says in Luke 24 that all the scriptures point towards his death and resurrection. And it seems like we got two little verses here. How does he say all the scriptures point to us? And how does Paul say that these events are in accordance with the scriptures? And I think it's important for us to understand that Jesus and Paul mean something much deeper, much more comprehensive than just talking about a verse or two that talk about resurrection. Would Jesus and Paul say that, uh, his, that Jesus' resurrection is in accordance with the scriptures? They mean also that the whole story of the Old Testament is moving towards death and resurrection. That the whole story of the Old Testament is God's plan at work. And it's a plan and a story that can only culminate in death and resurrection. Think about it for a second with me. Genesis 3, there's a promise that the seed of the woman is going to be wounded. But in the process of being wounded, he is going to crush death. You might think of the whole pattern of the tabernacle and the temple. Where the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sins is set out in grand display. You might think about the repeated promise over and over again throughout the Old Testament prophets that the coming of the Messiah, the coming Messiah is going to restore Israel and bring about new creation. You might think about Ezekiel who says that God is going to bring new life to dead bones and turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. You might think about the fact that the Old Testament says multiple times that this Messiah is going to be crushed for sin and yet he's going to live forever in a perfect reign of glory forevermore. What can possibly explain all of these themes, all, all of the story that's running throughout the Old Testament? It must culminate in death and resurrection. And this is what Jesus and Paul are saying. The whole scriptures are pointing towards a Messiah who will die and rise and shed blood for forgiveness of sin that will lead to newness of life and resurrection of dead people. That's what we're working towards. I think, to go back to N.T. Wright again, he says it best when he says Paul is not envisioning one or two or even half a dozen isolated passages about a death for sinner, 
or the resurrection of the Messiah. He's referring to the entire biblical narrative as the story which reaches its climax in the Messiah who dies and rises again. The scriptures tell one story of God calling and saving his people through a pattern of death, shed blood, restoration, forgiveness, resurrection, and new life that show up and give glimpses of what's coming at every turn. And so, yes, there are a few specific passages that Jesus very clearly fulfills with his death and resurrection. But even more, he fulfills the whole story and is the climax that the whole story has been leading to. So first, we should believe the resurrection because that's what the whole story of God's scriptures has been leading towards. But second, Paul begins to marshal his witnesses in sort of court-like fashion. Why else believe in the resurrection? How else can we be assured of the resurrection? Well, we have many witnesses who saw the raised Savior. Again, that Jesus died was well known. Everyone knew that Jesus died, including his opponents, the Jews, the Romans. They all saw the dead body. But then Jesus appeared. But then Jesus appeared, not right away, but three days later. He appeared to Peter. He appeared to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. He appeared to James. Then he appeared to all the apostles. Last of all, he appears to Paul. See, Paul's bringing witness after witness after witness to say Jesus appeared. We saw the risen Savior. And of course, if anyone doubts Paul's account and says, well, Paul, you know, that's a nice summary, but I don't really think I believe you. Paul says, hey, if you don't believe me, most of those 500 guys are still alive. Go talk to them. And that's the point of mentioning 500 brothers who are still alive. You can go check my facts. You can go talk to him. This is a real event in history, and the witnesses are still around to double check. And it's these facts that lead so many historians and theologians, even secular ones, to admit that there is little room to doubt the truth of this testimony or the sense of historical accuracy. In fact, as uh, one historian, one skeptical German historian Noted, he said, the only reason to doubt the truth of this testimony is if you decide first that resurrection is impossible. That's a great statement, isn't it? Jesus Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. We weren't expecting it, but we should have. And Jesus Christ died in history. It was a real event that actually happened, and there are witnesses to tell about it. You know, it can be easy to lose sight of how important it is to believe that the resurrection was a historical event. I don't know if you can think of times when you have been asked, how do we really know that Christianity is the right religion? There's all sorts of religions out there. Um, Why do you say Christianity is better? Do you think Christianity is just sort of philosophically superior to what everyone else believes? Did you sort of come up with this great moral system that's, that's better than what everyone else came to? I still remember being on a college trip We were on, I was on the debate team in college, and we took a college trip, and I was staying in a room with uh, another guy on the team. We were sort of falling asleep in that moment where you're almost asleep, and he says, you know, Chris, you ever wonder how we really know that Christianity's right? And in that moment where I want to go to sleep, he's bearing the struggle of his heart. How do I know this is really the right religion? There are so many out there. I'm pretty sure I stumbled through a pretty vague and terrible answer at the time. But the answer is because Jesus Christ rose from the dead. We don't need to make some statement like, well, Christianity makes more philosophical sense than other religions. That's not why we believe in Christianity. We don't say Christianity leads to more moral people than other religions. That's not why we 
believe in Christianity. We believe in Christianity because Christ rose from the dead in history. It's true. It happened. That's why we're here. And as Paul's going to say next week, look, if Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead in history, then we should all leave the church because it's all a bunch of hogwash. But if Jesus Christ did rise from the dead, if the Son of God did rise from the grave, if we think that actually happened in history, then he is Lord over all. He's coming again to judge all. And the judge and Lord of all has also said, I have the authority and right to give eternal life to anyone who believes in me. It happened in history. That's why we believe in Christianity over other religions. Because we believe it's true. And the Son of God rose from the dead to demonstrate it. He is Lord of all. What a hope. What a hope. This isn't a philosophical system of thought. It's something that happened. That our God did. And he did it. That he might prove that he's coming back again. And is able to give all that he promises. This is a glorious truth. It's a glorious truth rooted in history. This is Paul's point. This is the first point. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. Paul will unpack the significance of Jesus' resurrection in many ways throughout the chapter. But in our last few minutes, just look at verses 9 through 11 because Paul just gives us a very brief application for what it means to believe in a risen Jesus. And if he, he gives us this application by telling us about his own life. Look what he says. In short, you could summarize Paul by saying, in short, seeing the risen Jesus changes everything. But specifically, look how he says it. He says, I was unworthy to be called an apostle, for I persecuted the church. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. For I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God in me. Paul says that the grace of God... What is the grace of God? It's a word we use all the time. It is God's favor that comes to us through the risen Jesus. And he says three things. It is undeserved, it is not in vain, and it deserves all the credit. Think really briefly about all three of those. First, the grace of God that comes in a risen Jesus is undeserved. You know, Paul tried to kill people who believed in Jesus. And so it's not surprising to see him say, I am unworthy of the grace of God. But we too, when we see the resurrected Jesus, can only marvel at how unworthy we are to be died for and cleansed by the Son of God. Perhaps we didn't persecute the church of God, but put in whatever sin you like. I can certainly fill in many things. In my pride, I tried to take credit for what God deserved. I am unworthy for the grace of God. In my selfishness, I lived for myself instead of God and his people who deserved it. I am unworthy of his grace. In my anger, I punished another of God's people rather than forgiving like Christ. I am unworthy of the grace of God. In my self-pity, I refused to acknowledge the depth of my failure and made excuses rather than being honest in my confession before God and before others. So I am unworthy of the grace of God. We could go on. There are an infinite number of ways we sin, so there are an infinite number of ways we are unworthy of the grace of God. But we too, when we look at the risen Jesus and see what he did, can say, I too am unworthy of the grace of God. The grace of God is undeserved. Second, his grace is never in vain. His grace always works in us what he wills. And so we can continue to marvel when we see that by his grace, not only are we saved from sin, but he then uses us to serve his people and glorify his name and accomplish his will. Those God uses are us, (laughs) 
We are the ones that God has chosen to use. Why? Only because of his grace. And we need to be conscious of what Paul is conscious of. He says, whatever I accomplish, it's not me, but it's the grace of God at work in me. I love the way Charles Hodge summed it up when he said, Christian humility does not consist in denying what there is of good in us, but in the inviting sense of unworthiness and in the consciousness that what we have that is good is due to the grace of God in us. The grace of God will work good in us, for it's his work, it's his grace, for his glory. The grace of God is undeserved, but it is not in vain as it prepares us to give him glory and work his will. And finally, you note that the grace of God deserves all the credit. You note what Paul says. It is not I, it is the grace of God that is within me. And so at every turn, when we see the grace of God working forgiveness for our sins, when we see the grace of God enabling us to serve in ways we never would have done without Christ, what is Paul's conclusion and what is our conclusion? Glory be to Christ, because it's all of grace and it is all of him. So here's Paul's first argument. In history, Jesus Christ rose from the dead. It happened And it's a fact well attested by witnesses and well predicted by Scripture. And it's a truth that recalls us again and again to marvel at the work of God in us, to see any good in us as due to the grace of God alone, and so to break out in praise again and again to the glory, the goodness, and the grace of God in us. This is the truth, says Paul, that he and every other apostle has preached and that all God's people have believed in and found hope in life. Let's... Let's pray together as we thank God for this hope and this life. God, I thank you that we do not come together to sing about, pray about, read about, listen about a philosophy or an idea or, or a founder who taught good things. We come around an event, something that happened. And that something that happened was God himself becoming man dying for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, being buried but then rising again in power and glory and lordship according to the Scriptures. I thank you for this grand story that you have worked throughout history and brought to its climax in Christ and invited us to be part of the climax. May we run to Christ. May we know Christ. May we cling to Christ who is life, joy, and hope. And we pray that your Spirit would work this in us. To your glory. Amen.